When you hear that deadly radioactive waste from your neighborhood nuclear reactor is being placed for long-term storage in Holtec canisters, each of them containing a Chernobyl's worth of radiation, you probably believe that now you're safe. But then you hear a genuine, uncompromised nuclear expert say, We have whistleblower revelations from the year 2000 that show what garbage cans ready to fail these Holtecs are, they are certified by the NRC not just for on-site storage, but also for transport. And so this is really tempting fate to move these containers of questionable structural integrity through places like the metro Los Angeles area. Well, when you learn that such compromised storage casks, referred to as Chernobyl in a can, could come trucking or training or barging through your city and state, you begin to understand exactly how hot that seat is that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special report on last week's Congressional Briefing and Education Lobbying Day in D.C. on the topic of nuclear reactor decommissioning and the problems of storing the highly radioactive waste that will remain deadly for tens of thousands of years. We'll have interviews with participants Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear, Dave Kraft of Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, and Manajo Green of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, a veteran in the fight against Nuclear Point in New York. Today is Tuesday, July 24, 2018, and here is this week's special report, Congress Meets Nuclear Decommissioning Truth. Last week in Washington, D.C., on July 16, a superb panel of genuine nuclear experts held a congressional briefing on nuclear waste issues, and then on July 17, conducted a day of education, some might call it lobbying, of senators, representatives, and their all-important aides. To find out more about this summit between the powers that be in D.C. and some of our finest leaders, Nuclear Hot Seat spoke with three of them. First, Kevin Camps. He is the nuclear waste specialist for Beyond Nuclear, and when it comes to problems with existing radioactive waste and what's being done or not done with it, there's not much that Kevin doesn't know. There was, just this past Monday and Tuesday, a congressional briefing day and also a congressional education or lobbying day in D.C. that was put together on behalf of a coalition of groups dealing with nuclear issues. First of all, how do you feel that that went? I think it went really well. I hope that folks get a chance 
chance to watch the full congressional briefing because it was quite a powerful lineup of uh, expert speakers and each person took on a different subject matter. And I think we packed a lot into a short period of time and it was a standing room only crowd. So hopefully the decades or even centuries of accumulated wisdom at that panel table gets conveyed and communicated back to the members of Congress so they can stop making bad decisions and start making good decisions. What are some of the bad decisions that they have made most recently? Well, on May 10th, the U.S. House of Representatives, by an overwhelming majority of 340 to 72, voted in favor of H.R. 3053, the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act of 2018, and it's a radically, dangerously bad piece of legislation. And yet you even have so-called progressive Democrats voting in favor of it, doing things like not having waste in their own district, but inviting it through in large amounts on trains or trucks or barges. So the ignorance level is pretty astounding. Your position with Beyond Nuclear is as the nuclear waste watchdog specialist. Um, I like to refer to you as a nuclear waste bulldog for your tenacity with it. What are the key decommissioning issues that we face at all nuclear reactors? Well, a lot of atomic reactors have made a pretty darn good mess in terms of radioactive contamination on the site and in the facilities. And that needs to be cleaned up because if people ever live on that site in the future, and that's exactly what the owners of the land hope to do is to sell it for unrestricted reuse, then they would be very much in harm's way from exposure to the lingering radioactivity. And the cleanups often only go down inches or feet when the contamination can go down tens or hundreds of feet. So there's the cleanup issue. But the, the issue I focused on during the panel briefing was uh, high-level radioactive waste management. And so I emphasized hardened on-site storage as close as possible to the point of generation as an alternative to the bad ideas of the yucca dump in Nevada or centralized interim storage in the Texas-New Mexico borderlands any one of which, if opened, would launch unprecedented thousands of high-level radioactive waste shipments, mobile Chernobyls, through most states. Describe for the listeners exactly what hardened on-site storage consists of. Well, the very first step is to get the waste out of the packed-to-the-gills wet indoor storage pools because the pools are mega-catastrophes waiting to happen. And the poster child for that, yet again, is Fukushima Daiichi in Japan. The 160,000 nuclear evacuees from Fukushima Daiichi were fleeing from radioactivity released through breaches in reactor containments from the meltdowns. They came precariously close to a pool fire at Unit 4 at Fukushima Daiichi. And if that had happened, and it only was averted through sheer luck, if that pool had caught fire, then the number of nuclear evacuees could have gone up to as high as 50 million and the pool risks in the United States are worse than the pool risks in Japan. Our pools are more packed to the gills with high-level radioactive waste. So the first step in hardened on-site storage is to empty the pools of their contents. And then in terms of the dry cast storage on-site or near-site, those need to be fortified. Those need to be safeguarded. Those need to be secured into quality dry casks with monitors. And none of that is happening. And that's been the case since the first dry cast storage in the U.S. going back 32 years at this point. 
One sentence from the background materials I received on the briefing and the educational outreach, one sentence stood out. It was, according to the Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board, spent nuclear fuel and its containment must be retrievable, monitored, and maintained to prevent hydrogen gas explosions in both short and long-term storage and transport. Yet we know that the canisters in use at, say, San Onofre are only rated as safe for perhaps 20 to 25 years. They're sealed, so they cannot be reopened and examined. The fuel rods are not retrievable. And as we heard on last week's nuclear hot seat, the monitoring system that has been put in place is not adequate to detect early cracks or leaks. How has this been allowed to happen and what, if anything, can be done about it? Yes, well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is a rubber stamp agency. It's captured by the industry that it's supposed to be regulating. So in terms of the Holtex, which are the basis for the centralized interim storage facility targeted at southeastern New Mexico and used at San Onofre and 33 reactors across the country, we have whistleblower revelations from the year 2000 that show what garbage cans ready to fail these Holtecs are. They are certified by the NRC not just for on-site storage, but also for transport. And so this is really tempting fate to move these containers of questionable structural integrity through places like the metro Los Angeles area en route to New Mexico. They're vulnerable to accidents. They're vulnerable to attacks. And the NRC has rubber stamped them every step of the way and has never rectified the quality assurance violations that we've known about now for over 15 years. What are the options for decommissioning and is there a best approach? There's some debate because the quicker you send workers in to do the dismantlement and the cleanup, the worse their exposures are going to be. So there's this balancing act of having workers who know the site, have that institutional memory, know where the contamination is, how to clean it up. And I would add the responsibility to clean it up because if they've worked there for years or decades, they were a part of making the mess that exists. So it's only right that with their knowledge and with the fact that they were a part of making the mess, they should clean it up. But then there's the balancing act of those workers either retiring or moving on to another facility and losing that institutional knowledge. The NRC and its lax regulation allows nuclear power plants to do things like keep the wet storage pools full of high-level radioactive waste for as long as 60 years post-reactor shutdown. So that means 60 years of risking mega-catastrophe pool fires. So that's not acceptable. So that's why under hardened on-site storage, we call for the pools to be emptied on an expedited basis to prevent such mega catastrophes. So it's a balancing act of protecting workers against radioactive exposures, but getting sites cleaned up before those poisons move into the environment at greater and greater distances. With hardened on-site storage, the waste is there, but long-term, what happens to the waste? What happens to the site? Well, the companies involved and even the government agencies would like to free up these sites for unrestricted reuse. And we have seen a number of supposedly completed decommissioning projects, like at Big Rock Point in northern Michigan, where they only clean down a couple, three feet, if that, leaving behind plutonium in the soil, plutonium in the groundwater, plutonium in the sediments of Lake Michigan. 
that site is not appropriate for any kind of reuse. People could breathe in plutonium in the dust and get lung cancer years or decades later. So there needs to be a complete re-examination of decommissioning and make sure that all the radioactive contamination is cleaned up before these sites are used for any purpose. The extreme long-term for waste storage is going to have to be financed somehow. Is there enough money put aside at this time? And how is it spent? And if it runs out, where are the funds to come from? No, there's not enough money put aside. There's approximately $40 billion, $40 billion in the ratepayer nuclear waste fund that is meant for long-term management and ultimate geologic disposal of high-level radioactive wastes. The price tag that we know of on Yucca Mountain, if it were to ever open and it should never open, is well over $100 billion. So that shortfall would have to be made up by the American taxpayer, another humongous subsidy to the nuclear power industry. And that's for ultimate disposal, but even the interim storage, what's happening now is the companies are winning damage awards and that money is coming out of the U.S. Treasury. So the American public, whether ratepayer or taxpayer, are getting robbed coming and going by the nuclear power industry. It sounds like, and of course we track this on Nuclear Hot Seat, there have been horrendous decisions, wrong decisions made about decommissioning. Who are making these decisions and where are they getting their information from? Well, unfortunately, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in charge of decommissioning regulations, and yet they have essentially not established any. It's a regulation-free zone for the most part. It's so lax. And there is a rulemaking proceeding. NRC is supposedly updating its decommissioning regulations and the public is taking part in a very uh, deep way. And we'll see if the NRC listens or simply ignores our concerns yet again. So really Congress needs to intervene. It was a part of the reason for doing this congressional briefing last Monday because Congress is also asleep at the wheel, is not exercising its oversight authority and holding NRC's feet to the fire to protect their constituents. What can we as concerned citizens and listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat do to bring to bear some leverage so that there is an enforced listening to this and maybe a turning around of the policies? I would encourage listeners to get together with their friends and neighbors and demand a meeting with your U.S. representative and both of your U.S. senators and urge them to uh, do their job and to make sure that these sites are cleaned up completely and that the high-level radioactive waste is managed safely and soundly in the interim before there is some place for it to be exported to, which may be many years away, if not decades. And a lot of that kind of work is not happening on Capitol Hill. So it's gonna take a, a lot of work by grassroots environmental activists to make that happen, but we have to make it happen. We have to protect the planet and our homes. And our lives and our genetic future. In terms of the transport, that seems to be an issue that spreads the need for alarm about nuclear issues a lot wider than just to the communities that are currently hosting either waste sites or nuclear reactor sites, which in essence are waste sites as well. What are the problems with transport? Well, you're right. In terms of Yucca Mountain, for example, 
44 states, 100 major cities, and 75% of U.S. congressional districts are on the routes, the roads, the rails, the waterways that would carry high-level radioactive waste out to Western Shoshone Indian land in Nevada if that dump were to ever open. And it makes it everyone's problem. We all live in Nevada when it comes to nuclear waste transportation. And yet again, the NRC has inadequate design criteria for severe accidents like fires or underwater submersions. And it has largely too entirely ignored the risk of terrorist attacks upon these shipments as they move through major urban centers like Chicago. So this is everybody's problem in the country. And uh, that's why we need to wake people up so that we can take action to uh, prevent it from happening in the first place. And regarding the terrorist angle, one of the things I read was that when a cask would be shipped, it could only go five miles an hour if it was going on the roads, which would make it a sitting duck and it might as well have a great big red bullseye printed on it. Is that the case, that that's the speed that they can go so they would actually be blocking roads and drawing attention to themselves? For the rail-sized casks, which are giant, they hold 37 pressurized water assemblies. They're huge. If a heavy haul truck is used to move this 100 ton or heavier load, you're right. They could only go something like five miles per hour to get to the nearest railhead to put the thing on a train for the rest of the journey out west. There are smaller containers, much smaller containers, called legal weight truck casks. Those can go down interstate highways at speeds of 65 miles per hour, but they're much smaller in size. So it's going to be a mix of these rail-sized casks by heavy haul truck, by barge, by train, and then also these legal weight trucks going down interstate highways. But in any case, there are weapons out there, unfortunately, like anti-tank missiles that could completely blow a hole through these containers, release their contents, and that kind of thing is not being worried about very much at all by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Sounds like there's a lot that we as concerned citizens need to bring to the attention of our representatives and our senators. If people wish to have resource materials to bring to these meetings and to study up themselves, is there a good place for them to get this information? Sure. Our website, beyondnuclear.org, is a portal that you can find all kinds of information. And I'd also suggest the State of Nevada Agency for Nuclear Projects website is a repository of tremendous uh, scholarship on the safety and security and the routing of these proposed nuclear waste shipments to Nevada. So there are some resources. Kevin Camps is nuclear waste specialist for Beyond Nuclear. Next, we talked with Dave Kraft, executive director of Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, which is based in Chicago. Dave gives us a picture of what nuclear reactor shutdown and subsequent decommissioning means through the experience of just one of the communities that once welcomed the nuclear industry as the answer to their economic prayers. Tell us what these two days of events were in D.C. and their purpose. July 16th uh, was planned as a congressional briefing and this was an event that was over a year in the works, developing the content, figuring out the format, looking for partners. Uh, it was a very complicated thing, more than we thought. But the purpose of it was knowing that this Congress, under the Trump administration, two Republican houses, was going to move on 
the issues of radioactive waste pretty quickly, we decided that uh, we needed to put out information to the congressional uh, delegation on the real nuts and bolts frontline issues that get swept under the carpet and get ignored when these big decisions get made. So the idea behind it was to have frontline groups like Mayor Hill of Zion, who did come, and others uh, come to Washington, D.C. and literally brief the staffers or the representatives of, your, of the delegations from the states on the issues of principally reactor decommissioning and what that means, but also trying to get across the point that when you start talking reactor decommissioning, you automatically launch into the discussions of radioactive waste management, the storage of radioactive waste, centralized interim storage, which has been proposed in the uh, recently passed HR 3053 bill from John Shimkus, transportation of radioactive waste, and ultimately the disposal of rad waste. And again, that's where Yucca Mountain gets brought into the discussion. So this was an attempt to really get the alternative agenda out there to explain to the delegations that, first of all, there have been other alternatives that have been available since 2002 that both the nuclear industry and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission have ignored. And secondly, there's no real need to rush into centralized interim storage or Yucca Mountain because they are both faulty, expensive, unnecessary, and there are better ways to do business. So that was really the intent behind this congressional briefing. What was the turnout like, and were you satisfied with the numbers and the range of representation that you got in the officials who showed up? Yes, I mentioned we partnered with a number of groups, but perhaps the most important was a group called the Environmental and Energy Study Institute, EESI. They're based in Washington, D.C., and they've done many, many congressional briefings in the past. That is what they do as an organization. So their, their experience was invaluable. In addition, we had a lot of the grassroots groups and national anti-nuclear and safe energy groups partner on to raise the money. It's a costly endeavor to put one of these things on, we found out, but we did raise the funds. The EESI folks first made it clear early on that this was not an issue that they normally would take on, but we made our case persuasively. They decided to do it, and they were the ones who did all of the arrangements, the logistics, getting the room together, sending out notices to all 535 members of Congress, plus agencies, plus the media. It was a pretty uh, intensive enterprise. Now, you asked about turnout. These professionals told us that around the day of the event that there were 105 RSVPs to this event and that we shouldn't worry too much. Uh, we only had a room that could hold 60, by the way. We shouldn't worry too much because uh, usually attendance is about 50%, which means we should have expected about 50 people. We counted close to 75 or 80 people who showed up for this event. Now, that includes media. It far surpassed our expectations in terms of turnout. The other thing about it was it was an hour and a half long, and the first hour was presentation only, followed by a half hour question and answer. Very few people left at the one hour mark. So just about everybody stayed in the room, and then a group of staffers and media people stayed an extra half hour until four o'clock in the afternoon asking more questions. So we believe uh, this was really uh, far in excess of what we had expected in terms of uh, the results. What was NEIS's position in all of this and involvement? We have been meeting for almost a whole year, year and a half now, 
with organizations based in New York and New England who are confronting the same decommissioning issues that we're confronting here at Zion. NEIS has, has really been publicly speaking about decommissioning since 2013 when Exelon Corporation in Illinois first announced that it needed bailouts for its failing nuclear plants. Because we pointed out that if you're gonna to threaten to close down nuclear plants, you are opening the Pandora's box of decommissioning automatically. So we link the two very strongly that the bailout issue is linked to decommissioning. So as a result, we have been interfacing with a lot of the national groups and uh, in the past year and a half, NEIS has hosted two national strategic summit planning events here in Chicago, one at the end of 2016, one in March of 2018, where roughly 75 to 90 people each time from all over the country and many, many different frontline groups have shown up to talk about the issue of decommissioning, radioactive waste, Yucca Mountain, CIS. So we've been on board for quite a while on the decommissioning issue. We stuck with the planning for this congressional briefing with our colleagues in New York and New England and really kind of held this thing together uh, with weekly phone calls for almost a year. And this was the result. One of the case studies that was used to illustrate the challenges of decommissioning was Zion, Illinois, the nuclear facility there, which many consider to be a cautionary tale. Give us some background on the facility and what was faced there. Yeah, we're really pleased to be working with the community of Zion, particularly Mayor Al Hill for the last year and a half, almost two years now. Zion was a two-reactor facility constructed by what was then Commonwealth Edison, later became Exelon Corporation. But it closed prematurely in 1998 for a variety of reasons, and it sat idle on the shores of Lake Michigan, the drinking water supply of 16 million people for all that time, up until about the year 2010, when Exelon contracted with a company called Energy Solutions of Utah to do the decommissioning, the tear down of the plant so that it could eventually, for the most part, be put back into use uh, either in the community or if Exelon had a use for it, they would use it because it's their property. The one catch, of course, is that since we have no place to send high-level radioactive waste in the form of spent fuel, the 1,000 plus tons of spent fuel is going to have to remain up at the Zion community uh, until we find a permanent disposal facility for it. Over the last eight years, we have very closely followed the decommissioning that's gone on at the Zion plant, and by observing that process, have uncovered enormous gaps at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission level in terms of regulations, in terms of oversight, in terms of no fiscal accountability that can be uh, pointed to or examined by the public for projects that are over a billion dollars apiece. So uh, we followed this very closely and then realized that this is really a problem of the reactor communities. It, you know, we, of course, as environmentalists are concerned about what happens to the environment because of the radioactive waste. But when you see a community like Zion lose 55% of its tax base literally overnight when ComEd Exelon shut the plants down in 1998, it devastated their tax base. It destroyed local essential public services. It affected school district operation. It was just an economic nightmare for the community and they still haven't recovered from it. And there are over 67 sites around the country that are gonna face the same music. 
we realized we have to start talking to the mayors and getting them involved in this. And Mayor Hill makes no bones about it. He wishes that waste off the site in a heartbeat if that could happen. But he's also a realist. And he has told us, look, we know how, the, how slowly the wheels of politics grind. He's under no illusion that that waste that's sticking in his community is going to go away anytime soon. So while he really would like it out of there, he recognizes he's still stuck with it for at least another decade or more. So what he has come to the conclusion is that, number one, communities need to be compensated for becoming de facto high-level radioactive waste storage sites. They didn't sign on to that when they signed on to bring the reactors in the community, but they're stuck with the garbage bag now that Exelon has left. So he has been working with the Illinois delegation, Senator Tammy Duckworth, uh, Representative Brad Schneider, to introduce legislation that would compensate communities for a period of time that have uh, experienced huge economic hits because of the fact that they're looked at as de facto radioactive waste dumps. So that's his first thing. And the second thing is he recognizes, since he's stuck with it for 10 years, he wants that waste as safely contained as possible. He has said publicly he's in favor of a more enhanced version of the storage that they're using, which is called hardened on-site storage of the waste for as long as it's going to remain in his community. There was a 1982 Nuclear Waste Policy Act that included provisions to compensate communities impacted by nuclear waste storage. How has implementation of that policy act worked out for Zion? Well, that's been the problem. It is in the act, you are correct, but for some reason, and I really don't know what the reason is, it has not been implemented anywhere that we know of. And this is where Mayor Hill is coming back and, and our Illinois delegation is coming back to Congress and saying, hey, time to pony up, folks. So they're invoking that clause in the original 1982 uh, Radioactive Waste Policy Act. And now they've introduced uh, additional legislation called the Stranded Act. It's S-1903, which pretty much says the same thing, except in much more detail. It not only allows for financial compensation over a period of seven years, for these communities, but it also looks into the existing federal programs, opportunities in terms of economic development that already exist that the community could use to attract new business, to uh, attract new residents, especially for first-time home buyers. So they're looking into programs that exist so this doesn't become a, an additional tax burden to kind of rectify the environmental injustice that's taken place. I take it that whatever solutions are discovered for Zion will, of course, be shared with other mayors, other communities around the country. Is there already a mechanism in place for that? The legislation, which has not been passed yet, the S-1903, is open to communities where, number one, the operating license of a reactor is already closed, you know, it's, it's terminated, and the community is stuck with the waste. So that's your eligibility criteria. So yes, other communities would be open. Again, we got to get the legislation passed. Once that happens, though, then they are eligible to dip into the funds and into the programs that would be made available. In your opinion, what is the best case scenario facing Zion and the other nuclear reactor communities? We have our opinion. I'm sure the mayors have theirs. But we were well received and were given a genuine listen to by Mayor Hill. So I would hope other mayors around the country would sit down with environmental groups and, and give this the same consideration. So the first thing is, 
we recognize you folks got screwed. We back you up on the request for financial compensation for that. So that's the first piece. Second thing is, we are not satisfied with what the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the nuclear industry feels is adequate dry cask storage of the spent fuel once these reactors are torn down and, and the site decommissioned. The waste needs to be put in enhanced storage, which we have called hardened on-site storage. And we have been advocating this since 2002. For the last 16 years, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the industry has resisted this call. Hardened on-site storage is using the same technology they use, but doing it in a way that's much stronger and has much greater survivability, greater integrity over the lifetime of the casks for as long as the waste needs to be there. Now, this won't apply to all of the reactor communities, but we point out in the case of Zion that the overflight pathway out of O'Hare Field, which is, depending on the year, the first or second busiest airport in the world, the flights going to Europe fully loaded, the flights going to the East Coast fully loaded with fuel, literally fly over the West Coast of Lake Michigan fully, fully fueled. And if either through accident or terrorism or whatever, any of these airliners were to plop down in the middle of this pad, which is filled with 64 canisters and a thousand tons of radioactive waste, you could devastate the drinking water supply of 16 million people. That's why we're saying you've got to have a much more hardened site storage for this material, and Mayor Hill concurs. So that's something we would advocate to in, in the short term, if not the immediate term. When you go beyond the reactor decommissioning, you then have to deal with the current proposals before Congress for, to create what they call centralized interim storage facilities. The industry and the NRC is currently looking at sites in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, where they would like to funnel all of the existing high-level radioactive waste in one big storage site. They are rural areas, they're remote areas, but then when you start going into the details of what this means, you see what a nightmare it truly represents. Number one, we don't have the Starship Enterprise. You have to move 80,000 tons or so of high-level radioactive waste from around the country on the existing roads, rails, bridges, in some cases, barges on waterways. And just this past year, the American Society of Civil Engineers pretty much rated America's roads and rails uh, D minus or worse. In fact, Illinois was given a D rating for its roads, which was one of the higher ratings in the country. This is not the infrastructure you want to start moving some of the most toxic materials humanity has ever created on. So we're saying it's premature to move this stuff, number one. Number two, if you have hardened on-site storage, you don't need centralized storage for any sort of security or other reasons. So why bother? And then the third part of that is you're just going to have to move it a second time if and when we get the final piece of the puzzle, which is the permanent disposal facility. Now there too. Current legislation is pushing to reopen Yucca Mountain, which we have demonstrated to be faulty, not capable of safely handling high-level radioactive waste according to international standards. Numerous other objections to Yucca Mountain, both geological and political. The people of Nevada don't want it. Most importantly, though, and this always gets overlooked, is that all of these issues of transport, siting of the CIS facilities, and Yucca Mountain 
are hugely environmental justice issues because once again, it's been Native American communities, poor communities that are along the rail routes or nearby to the proposed CIS sites. They're the ones who are gonna get whacked with what goes wrong and things will go wrong. And then finally, if you have these CIS facilities, that's just one more site you're gonna to have to clean up somewhere down the road. So we oppose CIS, we oppose Yucca Mountain, and we are calling for a total re-examination of the process of what to do with the waste, have a real scientific characterization for the best available geological site, and really just don't do anything until you're ready to move it using hardened on-site storage at the sites where the waste is now. So in terms of next steps, what is there? This summer, grassroots organizations are going to be doing as much as they can to meet with their delegations to Congress to oppose CIS, to oppose Yucca Mountain. Now, already the House has passed H.R. 3053, which advocates for both of those pieces, which means the next step is it goes to the Senate. So particularly, we urge people to talk to your senators to oppose whatever version number, we don't have a, a bill number yet, in the Senate of H.R. 3053. Go ahead. Yes. We would urge the, the people, uh, ask their senators to advocate for hardened on-site storage and also a real credible, independent, publicly open scientific process to find a disposal facility, a permanent disposal facility for high-level radioactive waste. And last but not least, understand that these nuclear issues are just as much an environmental justice issue as the issues dealing with coal, dealing with the gas pipelines, oil trains. These are the same communities getting whacked only just by a different energy resource. So this is very much an environmental justice issue, particularly because it's always some poor Indian tribe that's at the end of the line that gets to hold the waste bag. Dave Kraft, the Executive Director of Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS. We'll return to our final interview in just a moment, but first, are you grateful that you're hearing about the congressional actions of last week regarding nuclear waste storage? You are not likely to hear news like this on mainstream media. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat exists, to get you nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for the information you get from this show, help us out by sending a donation to help us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to send a one-time donation. Or you can also set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who want to make a big difference on a budget, click on the big green Donate button that allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. We make it easy, and hey, that's what you'd spend for a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search out and share information that the nuclear industry would rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you have my gratitude. Mana Jo Green is Executive Director of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, which has been involved in decades worth of battles regarding New York's Indian Point nuclear reactors. 
located only 30 miles as the crow flies from Manhattan. Manajo gets to the impact of Indian Point on the ecology of the area, the legal battles, and what needs to be done to protect the people of New York from its potential as a terrorist target. Take the picture for us. What is the current situation at Indian Point? Indian Point has two reactors that are more than 40 years old, and they're slated to close in 2020 and 2021, which is why Hudson River Sloop Clearwater and our colleagues have really focused on the decommissioning of nuclear power plants because we want to ensure that this facility is decommissioned as safely as possible. It doesn't seem likely that in the foreseeable future, the massive amounts of nuclear waste that are stored on site are going to be moved off site. So we're really trying to focus on various issues related to decommissioning and to educate the elected officials and community members so that they can make wise decisions. When it comes time for the decommissioning process, who would be in control of the decisions being made? Is it the NRC only, or do municipal and state agencies have any real input to or control over the process? It's really primarily the owner, surprisingly. I mean, theoretically, the jurisdiction is with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but the uh, what they call the post-shutdown assessment report, or activities report, rather, only needs to be submitted by Entergy, the current owner of Indian Point. It doesn't even need approval by the NRC. It's just sort of a technical step. But we also believe that if we educate the community at large, that it will create a climate where the best possible outcome can occur. And furthermore, we are working to create state legislation to empower a citizen oversight board. The NRC does enable what they call citizen advisory boards, and this would be a variation of that. In New York, the electricity markets are deregulated, and so there's much less control by, for example, the New York State Public Service Commission than in states where there public service, whether it's a utility board or a commission, have the ability to regulate the owners, not just the utilities. So here in New York, Indian Point is privately owned, and there's very limited jurisdiction, but not none, that the Public Service Commission and the Department of Environmental Conservation and several other state departments do have. But our intention is to educate and empower the elected officials from the impacted communities and beyond, and also the public at large. It sounds like by putting the owners in charge of their own decommissioning process, it's a little like putting the fox in control of the hen house. Is there receptivity in the community and with the legislators that you have been speaking to, specifically from earlier this week 
for both the lobbying day and the congressional education lobbying day? In the local community, very much so. We've held a series of forums with one of the most influential local media, uh, LOHUD, and the forums were extremely well attended, and one of the legislators said to me, Manny, you're scaring the daylights out of me, but in a good way. We need to know this in order to make informed decisions. At the federal level, it's a little different. There are many pieces of legislation around nuclear waste and the decommissioning of more than 90 facilities in the next decade will be faced with closure and decommissioning. There's one bill that would fast-track what they call consolidated interim storage on the border of New Mexico and Texas, and Yucca Mountain in Nevada as a national repository as what we believe is hydrogeologically unsound, environmentally unsound facility that's been debated for more than 20 years, and there has been no resolution. So what we're finding is that some of our congressional representatives are very much in favor of what's called H.R. 3053, the bill sponsored by Congressman Chimkus. Others were not quite sure. They might have been leaning in one direction or another, but when we presented them, particularly with the dangers of transporting high-level nuclear waste by barge or rail or over the road and showed the cities that this waste would have to go through and the issues uh, related to transportation, you know, their eyes widened and you could see that they were reconsidering the tendency to sort of just want to get it out of here. Ultimately, there may be a sound national geologic repository, but until there is, it doesn't make sense to transport waste twice as difficult and dangerous as transportation is. So we've been putting focus on what is the safest way to store this waste on site until there really is a more viable solution? This is going to be, of course, a very long-range, many-decade process to decommission any nuclear reactor. Where is the money to come from? And with the owner or the licensee in charge, who is controlling the monies and how they are spent? Each reactor facility has a decommissioning fund, a decommissioning trust fund. In the case of Indian Point, when the facility was deregulated and Energy bought the facility, they inherited that trust fund. They've added nothing to it. And it's very hard for us to assess whether it's adequate or not because we don't know what the decommissioning plan is. Uh, we want to ensure that the decommissioning plan is the safest possible for the surrounding community, uh, especially since Indian Point is you know, roughly 30 miles from New York City and has 20 million people 
living within a 50-mile radius. And needless to say, the financial center of the world and, and all the other assets that are clustered here. And so we're really trying to move forward, but we can't know what energy is planning. And so we are very concerned that the decommissioning funds may be inadequate. And it's not clear who would be responsible to make up the difference. On a national level, the operating reactors have been paying into a fund that would promote some national solution. But again, that is not adequate. And in order to release any of those funds, there would have to be an appropriation. And so that's really what we think has to be stopped right now until there is enough good science and good planning to come up with a solution that is really acceptable across the country. We don't think that we should be rushing into this terrible plan for consolidated interim storage or Yucca Mountain, which is an unsuitable site for a national repository. There was a lot of very specific information delivered by our high-level experts on Monday and Tuesday. How do you think things went, both in the briefing and in the education lobbying day that followed? It was standing room only for the briefing, and in addition, many people watched it on a live webcast. Because there was such a high level of interest, I think that indicates a real readiness to embrace a topic that, you know, one could sort of either be in denial or get to it when you get to it. Well, we have to get to it now because most of the nuclear reactors in the country are either slated to close or will be closing, as I said, in the next decade or certainly several decades. But so many of them are ready to close even within the next couple of years that push has come to shove and they are paying attention. One of the things that was absolutely delightful to see, we had a youth representative, a young man named Jackson Hinkle from San Onofre Green, was on the panel. And many of the legislative aides and assistants in the room were also young people. And he was highly knowledgeable and and articulate and really resonated with the younger participants in this briefing. And I also think that the fact that Ian Zabarte, who is a leader of the Shoshone tribe, spoke and really touched people's hearts for the amount of exposure that his people have suffered, first from atomic testing and then from the mining of uranium in their communities. So it's an environmental justice issue. It's an issue that youth are concerned about for their future. And it's a really critical issue to be grappling with. And I think that each one of the speakers really contributed to that knowledge base that these folks will then go back to their bosses, their, you know, the Congress members and senators and bring the information back, and we've taken a giant step forward. 
So regarding decommissioning and safety, what would the first step have to be? The first step is to get the older, somewhat less, but still highly radioactive fuel out of the fuel pool into a form of dry cask storage to be sure that the canisters and the casks that we put this waste into are both vented and inspectable and also that instead of clustering them on a concrete pad like a bunch of bowling pins that we hope would never become a terrorist target, but they could be, we want to see them distributed in berms. It's called hardened on-site storage, less approachable by potentially some form of a weapon. And because they're bermed and they're not right open and that easy to be found and breached. So hardened on-site storage in thick-walled canisters seems to be in this industry the state of the art for the safest possible storage, moving the older rods out of the fuel pool and also ensuring that the high burn-up fuel, which is in the pool, these are the more recent fuel rods, are kept in the pool long enough to cool off adequately. What high burn-up fuel is, is that in the past five to ten years, the facility has been using highly enriched uranium. And when they go through the reactor, the fission process in the reactor, they come out much hotter than the fuel that used to be used, the low burn-up fuel. It allows the company to keep the fuel rods in the reactor longer and is cost-effective, but then you end up with a much hotter and highly radioactive waste that needs to be kept in a fuel pool longer. So we don't want to be rushing decommissioning or rushing the transfer of those highly radioactive fuel assemblies into a canister. And we want to be sure that the canisters, you know, can hold that material safely. And ultimately, it's going to be for millennia before they cool off to any acceptable level. Another thing that's critical is that we establish a baseline and monitor the site. So we want a baseline characterization of the air, the soil, and the water, how much radiation is leaving the site when the reactors are shut down, and to make sure that over time that things are getting better or staying the same but not getting worse. We need that baseline and ongoing monitoring. You know, Indian Point takes two and a half billion gallons of water every day out of the Hudson River, and it has a significant impact on Hudson River fish uh, and the aquatic ecosystem. That will stop in 2020 and 2021 when Units 2 and 3 close. But the danger to the Hudson Valley, to the Hudson River, and to the people living near Indian Point near and far from Indian Point remains, and that is with the vast legacy of highly radioactive waste. I like to liken it 
to the goose that laid the golden eggs for 40 or in this case 45 years and brought tax revenues and charitable donations and jobs to the community. But it left this really horrible legacy of highly radioactive waste that people didn't think about and didn't talk about. Some of us did, but they weren't faced with it until now uh, with the plants closing, the loss of revenue, and the impact the community is facing, they are very interested in ensuring that this is done well and protectively. And the other thing I want to stress is that the workers who have been working at Indian Point, keeping it operating as safely as it has in spite of many, many problems that this facility has had over the years, Those workers have institutional memory that should be utilized during decommissioning. The first part of decommissioning is going to include moving fuel rods to dry cast storage, which they are experienced with doing. And so it's an an interesting time where we're working closely with the unions to try to ensure just transition for the workers, and that includes retention for the workers with this valuable knowledge and experience and institutional memory, and also includes retraining and placement, ideally in the renewable energy industry, for workers whose jobs will be lost after the plant closes. Manajo Green of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater. There was a terrific background presser created for this event, Decommissioning Nuclear Power Plants, What Congress, Federal Agencies, and Communities Need to Know. It's clear, concise, accurate, and just bursting with the kinds of details the nuclear industry hates for us to understand. We will have a link up to that PDF on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 370. And a quick update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It has been accepted by CreateSpace, and a proof copy, a printed proof copy of the book, is in the mail to me even as I record this. I am so excited, I'm just about ready to bust out of my skin. Next week, I will confirm our launch date, which right now looks like it's going to be August 2nd, and at that point give you details on how to order. The wait is almost over. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 24, 2018. My thanks this week to all the presenters and organizers of last week's congressional briefing. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that nuclear... The issue is safety. Pass it on. Okay, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.